Yeah, it is good when you can sense the Lord doing something. And I love uh, this picture that, that Lori is beginning to paint. And Lori had, you know, emailed us earlier in the week because they uh, get together and they paint. And she's like, what are the themes for, for the night? And uh, three phrases we're going to talk just a little bit about are word and spirit, uh, fire and form, and then new wine and new wineskins. And it's interesting because the first miracle that Jesus performs in Scripture that we see is when he turns water into wine. And what is, as you unpack the story of what is taking place here, is that the vessels that this water is in are for ceremonial cleansing. So they were used to come and they would wash their hands in them. And it's interesting that Jesus says, well, he doesn't say, he does it. I'm going to take this water that is dirty and filthy and I'm going to turn it into new wine, which represents his blood poured out for us. And that's what the Lord is doing. He's covering us tonight with his shed blood. And it lends itself that picture. And I think even where the Lord is doing what we're going to unpack tonight is we've had a strong sense uh, just in really the last couple months uh, that we need to, we're supposed to do some things. And this was prompted by Pastor Kevin. He had come to me uh, and he had, he'd given me a book and he says, hey, I want you to read this. Uh, with no pretense, and then just I want us to talk about it. And this book is called Spirit and Sacrament. Uh, and my first, my first impression is like, spirit, great, sacrament, boo. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll power through it. But as I started to get into it, it did not take very long of like, my spirit just came alive. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it came alive in a way that has not come alive in actually some time, actually about what this pastor is trying to unpack here. And, and so we're going to, Steph and I are going to, you know, have a conversation. We're going to talk about what we feel like the Lord is calling us into for the 610 service. And we think there's some broader strokes for us as a body here at 3rd. Uh, but with that, there's a little bit of a sense of like, I would say some anxiety and a little bit of sense of adventure of some unknowns. And, and it reminded me this last week, my family went to Wisconsin Dells and it's like the water park mecca of the world. We had never been there and we get there and I'm like, whoa, this is like Branson water park on steroids. Like it's you know, tourist traps and all this stuff, but tons of water parks. And so we go to this one and me and my family are, we went on this first one, it was fine. And then my wife and kids were gonna go on this one. I didn't have a lot of interest in. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go explore. And so like I head right for the main one, like the granddaddy of them all. And it's called the Scorpion's Tale. And it's funny because it, the scorpion's tail, and then there's another slide called the point of no return. And as you walk up the steps, there's like these little signs that say, this is when your hands begin to sweat. This is when your stomach starts to turn. And so I get up to the top for the scorpion's tail, and I want to play this video so you can see the, this slide. So let's uh, roll this video. is uh, 300 feet, you get inside this tube and the floor drops out from you. And this is the best part because it counts down. And I'm not going to lie, this video doesn't do justice 
just how scary this actually is. You know, so my wife had got on it and she said she had seen a person, which they tell you, you get in, you're supposed to keep your feet together. You're supposed to keep your hands crossed. And one person got dropped and this was their response. Just like this. Like, no, that cannot be a response in this. Because in it, you could see it goes up and comes back around. If you're not going fast enough, you won't make it up the curve and you actually slide backwards. And then there's a little opening and they go pull you out there and you do the walk of shame. Uh, but this, you know, this ride reminds, you know. I'm glad you made it back alive. I know, right? I know. It was great. It was awesome. Like, it was fun. And, and so I feel like that's what we're on, a little bit of this journey of there are some things that are known. Like, I, I've been on plenty of thrill rides to know what the experience is like. And yet there's a little bit of the unknown and a little bit of that anxiety and that stress that starts to build. And in the end, there's something beautiful. And my kids were asking me about it. And they're like, was it scary? Should we go on it? I'm like, uh, you are not going on it. Because my kids will be forever terrified of rides. Like, and I'm not one of those parents. I just, just don't be this parent that drags your kid up to the top and be like, you got to go on this to prove how, prove how courageous you are. I'm like, no, that's terrible parenting. Come on, don't do that. So I am not <laughs> one of those issues. parents. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so tonight we want to unpack a little bit, like, what could a future look like for us in this idea of, of spirit and sacrament and what does that mean? Awesome. Gosh, I'm really excited after that now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Awesome. Well, yeah, like Mike said, we're going to do just a little bit of uh, a tag teaming just to kind of unpack some of this this vision that's just begun to kind of percolate for us. And uh, like Mike said, we don't have it in entirety, but just some things that we're feeling like uh, the Lord is welcoming us to kind of embrace um, in this season. And so, like Mike said, uh, a lot of the inspiration for this came from this book from Pastor Kevin, and uh, the full title is Spirit and Sacrament, an Invitation to You Charismatic Worship, which, I mean, that's got to be a made-up word, right? Is I, that for real? I'd never heard Anybody of it. heard of you charismatic <laughs> before? So I had not. Um, anyway, so in order to have this conversation, I'm going to unpack just a little bit about what the author is actually referring to uh, when he talks about this merger of these streams. And uh, just one other note, and we've talked about this kind of in this community before, um, really one of the things that the Spirit is just doing across the church right now is he's bringing streams together. Uh, there's a new unity that's happening within the body that is um, in some ways unprecedented. Um, different streams are coming together in ways that they just have not before. And so really this book is unpacking kind of this, uh, the streams of sacrament and spirit or Eucharistic and kind of um, charismatic coming together in this eucharismatic way. Okay, so that's your new word for tonight. <laughs> eucharismatic, all right? So, um, like I said, let me just unpack a little bit of just some verbiage and help us to get our minds around what are we actually referring to when we talk about these terms. So, let's start with talking just a little bit about what does it even mean, what's, what's Eucharistic mean, what is he even referring to uh, when he talks about that stream. So, um, you're probably familiar with the word Eucharist, you know, it's a word that's used for the Lord's Supper, uh, for communion, and so the Eucharist is referring to kind of the sacramental uh, part of um, 
gatherings. And so um, when we think of Eucharistic, we think of kind of a historically rooted church. Uh, it would be sacramental, um, liturgical loving, um, marked by communion, formal liturgy, prayers of confession, hymns, psalms, reading, silence, and blessing. And uh, one of the other actually really beautiful things about kind of the sacramental and Eucharistic um, uh, part of the church is that it also really connects us some ways with some of the tangible physical uh, parts of our story of our faith. Um, just a high value for the bread and the wine and um, oil and water. And um, I don't know if Mike's going to touch on this at all, but in an increasingly kind of disconnected online age, there's something about the physical, tangible things that we can do as we come together that um, is just important for us. Uh, you know, the author makes a note like we can jump online at any point right and listen to the best speakers. We can listen to incredible worship at any time, at any place. But we have to come together, right? Or we, we can't take communion without tangibly having the bread and the wine with us. Or the experience baptism without the water. So there's something about the physical and tangible that actually is a really beautiful part of our story. So that's what we're kind of talking about when we think about the Eucharistic kind of sacramental. And, and I would say not just like mentally, but there's also a mystical side to this part of the church too. So so it's not just, um, you know, some of us, like Mike said, can hear that and think, ooh, old, boring, dry, mental kind of ascent to who God is. But there's actually, um, there's so much um, mystical and beautiful about communion. Or if you read some of the, um, the mystics that were a part of a lot of these traditions and prayers that are used, um, very much, um, yeah, kind of not just cerebral, actually really mystical uh, part of our faith story as well. So that's what we mean by Eucharistic. And then let's jump to kind of the charismatic or spirit. And um, that's kind of a bucket term. And it would be a church who emphasizes the supernatural experience and also the available of the New Testament gifts for all believers. Um, it welcomes healing, prophecy, tongues, warfare, deliverance, uh, the acknowledgement of the angelic and demonic. Um, there's typically a love of the spontaneous movement of the spirit. And so um, in some ways, that's the atmosphere we've kind of been cultivating um, in this space. And um, also a beautiful expression uh, of the church. And so um, what I want to do, though, is I want to read just a couple of quick uh, uh, sections out of this book just to give us a picture of, but what if these things come together and what can that look like actually when these beautiful parts of the bride begin uh, to come together as one? So hold tight just a second here while I grab the page. And I want to just begin to give you a picture of what this eucharismatic uh, reality could look like. So imagine a church uh, rediscovering the power of symbol, water and bread, wine and oil. Picture them reinventing their liturgy to include biblical elements that they've missed and finding depths to the gospel that they had almost forgotten. Imagine the snowball gaining momentum as they use monks to help them pray and martyrs to help them sing. They start to read books by dead people and find that maybe they're more alive than many of the books they've been reading by living people. They rejoice in the sacraments. They do things that do things. 
Now imagine them drenched in the Holy Spirit, prone to spontaneous outbursts of praise and the kind of joy that makes people spin. They begin to heal the sick. They read Psalm 150 and they actually do it. They cast out demons if needed. They use spiritual gifts in meetings, not just the leaders, but everyone. They shout sometimes, they dance sometimes, they laugh like children. They pray as if the Lion of Judah is on the edge of his seat, hackles raised, ready to pounce, and they expect God to speak to them at home or in the office. Their meetings look more like African weddings than English funerals. Now put all of this together. Imagine a service that includes healing testimonies as well as prayers of confession, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, baptism in water and baptism in the spirit, creeds that move the soul and rhythms that move the body. Imagine young men seeing visions, old men dreaming dreams, sons and daughters prophesying, and all of them coming to the same table and then going on their way rejoicing. Can you see it? That is what it means to be you charismatic. So, yeah, I think a, a pretty um, compelling and kind of beautiful picture of what it can look like when multiple streams become uh, one together. Because I think what happens is we just begin to get a fuller and a richer picture of who the Lord actually is. And so... Um, yeah, like Mike said, some of us can get a little bit nervous depending on which part of the church we grew up in, whether this is exciting or not exciting. But I would just say, uh, hold on. I think we, we're, um, we're curious about what the Lord might be stirring here. So I'm going to yeah. let Mike do just a little bit more yeah. some unpacking of you, around some that. Some of you know that part of my story is, and the journey that I've been on is I, you know, I was raised in I would, an evangelical conservative church. Uh, for the first part of my childhood, and then we went to a charismatic, and I talk about the, the extremes that I've lived on of a church that really didn't believe in the movement of the Holy Spirit, you know, a holiness, conservative church, you know, and many, many things were great about it, and then uh, we go to a charismatic church, and then I find myself here at Third Reformed Church, where we talk lots about word and spirit, and I don't know if this is the right term, but it's the one I use. And me, for me, it's always been a longing of, of what is the balance of these pieces coming together? Because it always seems we land in ditches or we land in extremes. And, and I think this is like, we know this to be true. Like there are extremes of the spirit and extremes on the sacrament side. And whatever side you land on, we, there's some anxiety uh, that comes about. And uh, as I've been in this, and I, I want to talk a little bit about my story uh, over the last five months as I started to get into this, and I, I think this will help make sense. This is what I felt like the Spirit was saying is uh, about right at Lent, when I started Lent, I went on, I would say, a fast, and I, I was on it for about four and a half months, and there it was a fast for some health things, not life-threatening, and some of you could tell because people were asking me questions like, whoa, Mike, you've lost a lot of weight. And I went on a fast. It was a particular diet where I was eating no sugars, no carbs, no dairy. Uh, really, really strict I did it for four and a half months. And let me talk about the strictness of this. So like when I say no sugar, I didn't eat green beans, corn, any kind of fruit because that has sugar in it. So I was really restricted to proteins and some things. And in that, I was starting, the Lord started to really reveal some things to me. Through the season of Lent, I was going through the freedom class. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, there are some things coming out of me that were really, really buried. 
And in the midst of that, what I started to learn about my own health, about diet, spiritual things, and how we're meant to be mind, body, soul, all these things coming together, this really started to resonate with me. And part of what I was experiencing, and this is what I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying and why I think this could be really, really important, and I'm going to say very rich and deep, is that in the midst of what my, what my fast was doing is I was removing sugar. I was removing preservatives and all these things that were not healthy for me. And as I did that, I actually could tell like I was becoming more healthy. But what was interesting is in that, I also started to have a greater thanksgiving and appreciation for food that was really good and for the preparation that it takes. My wife will talk about this, like in the midst of this, there was a ton of discipline on my part and sacrifice. So for me, I did all my own shopping. I did all my own meal prep. And it would take almost 30 minutes for every meal because I had to chop fresh everything, cook everything. There was an extreme discipline in it. And I was, I was saying, Lord, what is in this? And what does this mean for this? And what I felt the Holy Spirit say is that the church in the Western world has been on a high diet of sugar, carbs, and, uh, and preservatives. Nothing that is actually creating sustenance. In, and I don't want to say health, because there's some things that have been healthy about the church. But wow, there is something that when you start to rid yourselves of these things, that all of a sudden... Uh, you just become healthier. And what I wonder is, what would it look like for us to move into a place where there is a depth and a breadth to what the Lord has done for the last 2,000 years around the things of the Spirit and around coming around the Lord's table? You know, I joke, I love, you know, I love communion. I've actually, I've had it in this last season, an increased appreciation for it and what it means. And I'll just be honest, I'm tired of the little bread and the little cup of juice. Like, I want to come to the Lord's table and I want to feast. And there is something that the culture is craving and uh, the, the church is going to need. And talk really briefly about the culture. We talk lots about culture. And we're going to, in this next two years, talk about moving into a place of what we would say is exile. And this is this reality that we live in a post-Christian world. And so for, I would say, for people that are like 40 years old, I'm 43, I put myself into this group. Uh, we've got to get our heads wrapped around this idea of what it means to live in a post-Christian world because we did not grow up in that reality. We grew up where it was okay for God to be in schools and for God to be in government and to talk about God. But we're moving into a place where that is no longer commonplace, where our children are growing up and they will have no reality of who Jesus is and what it means. And in that context, we're going to have to redo and rethink what it means to come together as the body of Christ because this culture it is spiritually starved, and the church has not been helping that. I really believe that on both extremes. And so I think what the Lord is inviting us in, into is what could it look like to step into these realities where there is a depth of spirituality? We are starved for truth. And I would say even in this idea of word and spirit is there's lots of churches that open up their Bibles, and they're still starved for a lot of truth. And so we want to, we're going to take some risks. We're going to take some steps. And three phrases that have been helpful for me in this that we talk a lot about is word and spirit. That's a common phrase for us of how do we be deeply in the word, in the fullness of the word, and talk about the hard stuff and the things that don't make sense uh, in the spirit side. Form and fire is a phrase that came out. And this comes from a gentleman, Mark Sayers, who is really brilliant. I'd encourage you to get his books and listen to his podcasts. 
because uh, his understanding of a culture, uh, in my opinion, is he is a leading voice right now. And he talks about form and fire. And he says that in the past, when revival has always come and the spirit comes, it oftentimes is a flash in the pan because there's actually no form that sustains the Holy Spirit. And that can seem a little bit contradictory because usually when we say we want the Holy Spirit to come is we just want to let the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants. Well, usually it's the people, they do whatever they want and not necessarily the Holy Spirit. And so we want the Holy Spirit to do his thing, but we actually need some form so that we can disciple people and let them go deep in what the Spirit is doing. And then this last one is this idea around new wine and new wineskins. And I think this is a key phrase, and I've been wrestling with this and saying, Lord, what does that mean for us? And I would say most people are like, when we talk about new wine, we get this concept of like, yes, we want the new wine and the new work of what the Holy Spirit is doing, because he's always doing something new in his church. We see that throughout history. Uh, but the catch in that is, and we know this, I want to read this, is that we also need new wineskins. And uh, Jesus talks about this, and he, he does it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so that in itself tells us there's some importance about this. And this is from, I'm going to use Luke 5, starting in verse 33. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and they pray. So do the disciples, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. And so he told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it, sews it on an old one. And if he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new for he says the old is better. So there's a lot going on in here. Uh, we really know that, you know, what Jesus is getting at is this idea, as I pour out my spirit, as I'm doing something new, it actually has to have a container that also is new. It's a container that is flexible. So for wine, as wine goes into a container, it begins to ferment and the gas comes out. And for old wineskins, those wineskins would burst. And this was my conviction is that I love the new wine. I'm not sure I want the new wineskin because I want it to look like this. So I'm like, Holy Spirit, will you pour out, will you do something new, but could you do it in the way that I want it to look like? I don't want the new wine skin. I'd rather hold on to the old, what I know. And this is, I am beginning to understand this more and more, is where this culture is going is we are gonna need new wine skins. And I'm gonna say this, for us older people, we're gonna have to wrestle with this because how we do church how we live this Christian walk, how we disciple people is going to have to look radically different. I'm convinced of it. So it's going to take new wine, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it's going to have to be contained in new wine skins. And when we hold those things together, they become really good. But what caught me off guard in this, and this is the one text that at this last phrase uh, is not in all of them, and it, it if you go and you study them, actually, they all end a little bit different. But this one is interesting. It says, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. And I'm not a wine connoisseur. Steph, I know that you like wine. <laughs> oh, so, um, did I, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, but this is true, that aged wine is better than new wine. It's true. <laughs> 
aged wine is better than new wine. And what I saw raised for me is the Holy Spirit just saying, why are we so quick to do away with the old? What if there actually is some things of the old, of, of sacrament and liturgy, and even ways that the Holy Spirit has moved that are really, really good? And then we know this about Jesus. I guarantee that when Jesus filled those basins, that that wine tasted like the finest aged wine that was possible. So that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that in the new, it actually can result in something that feels old and aged. Uh, and so I think the coming together of the new and the old and being reminded of church history and all these things are going to help ground us and ground a people. And I... For, this is my dad heart coming out and why some of this started to raise is that for my own kids as what they are experiencing and as they grow up is I'm like, oh, Jesus, I want them to be so deeply rooted in who you are and have things that they can come back to. And so I need them to know the Lord's Prayer. I want them to know the Apostles' Creed. I want them to pray prayers that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Because my, you know, kind of how I am wired, I'm always about the new. I've always like asked, heck with the old. I want the new. I want the new. And the Lord is saying, nope, there's something really good and right about the old. And for some of us, I know that makes us, our palms sweat. And so what we want to do is figure out how to do this well. So I'm going to read one little section too and then hand it back over to Steph. Um, and I'm going to read Steph read one of the sections that I was going to read. So I want to read this first one. I'm trying to not double up here. So let me read this. To many of you, especially in the Western world, I suspect this vision will sound like the worst of both worlds, and I sympathize. I think of one person I know who was inoculated against Christianity at age 12 when he heard a man with an oily beard and a big priestly hat surrounded by icons declaiming in tones of the utmost solemnity, my heart is full and my cup overfloweth, and simply didn't believe him. I consider the absurd antics of some of the paper-waving, foundation-faced prosperity preachers who appear on Christian television. And I acknowledge that much new church liturgy fails to acknowledge the realities of sin and suffering, and that much old church liturgy fails to acknowledge much else. I remember the excruciating boredom as a child of sitting through the same words being repeated in the same way to the same individuals every week on wooden pews for wooden people and the equally excruciating embarrassment as a young teenager of singing happy clappy choruses to gradually accelerating Jewish melodies as middle-aged women twirled their dresses, stamped their feet, and waved their tambourines. If eucharistic churches are dead and charismatic churches are ridiculous, then to be eucharismatic would be dead and ridiculous, which is the only thing that could be worse. On the other hand, I remind myself that children and young teenagers can get bored or embarrassed by almost everything, Shakespeare, sex, Mozart, fine wine, the Godfather, and that even the most captivating truths can be represented in either mawkish or soul-destroying ways. I reassure myself that there is not a church in the world whose services do not make some of those in attendance cringe, grumble, or both on a weekly basis. And I reflect on the fact that bad ways of doing things do not mean they should not be done at all, merely that they should be done not be done badly. And I cast my mind back through church history and recall the myriad of ways in which we have turned blessing into curses by making such a mess of them. And I study the New Testament church and faith returns. 
And so I think our hope is that somehow there could be this convergence of the both and. And when Kevin brought this to me, uh, you know, uh, Kevin loves liturgy and he loves sacraments and contemplative. Uh, and so at first I'm like, well, he's really wanting us to really get after that. But he, he, he caught me by surprise and he said this. He's like, Mike, we got to figure out how to do the prophetic and not be weird. We got to figure out how to speak in tongues and have interpretation of tongues and do it well. We got to figure out how to get everybody to stand in the place to see people healed and cast out demons. And so our hope is that we can actually bring these beautiful things together. And, and I have to apologize as a worship leader because I feel like in many ways, um, not intentionally, but I'm like, you know, our liturgy and the things we do on Sunday mornings form us, sometimes more than anything else. He says this in the book that we're formed most by our worship together. And so our hope is that we would begin to do some things. And we've been doing some of these things. This is not like this is all brand new stuff. I think we're just going to become very intentional with it and unpack it and talk about it uh, so that we have a breadth of understanding that takes us deeper uh, into who Christ is and what he's calling us to become. Yeah, so I think... Um I think we're excited about that. I think we're excited about what it could look like to kind of play around with some of these themes that we've talked about this year, kind of unpacking, you know, even within uh, our liturgy, like one night, what does it mean to come to the Lord's table and bring physical healing together and to uh, press into liturgy and prayers of the saints right alongside prophetic declaration. And, uh, uh, you know, I look forward to the day when we can... um, baptize people in here while we're worshiping and then send them over to receive a prophetic word for the next season for their lives. And so, again, just bringing together um, just these multiple streams. And uh, it's just been good for my own uh, prayer life in this past season to kind of re-engage even with some things that I had kind of let settle. And even as I'm discipling my own kids, like Mike and I said, we're in the thick of discipling our own kids right now. And, you know, we pray together every single morning on the way to school. Um, but what I found is that, you know, sometimes, uh, they're sleepy or grumpy or just don't really want to engage in a spontaneous prayer on the way to school. But when we began to incorporate always closing with the Lord's prayer, it's just amazing how their spirits would jump just right in and begin to pray alongside as we use the Lord's prayer to bring us together um, as we drove. So just good reminders that there's something beautiful when we take uh well, and really culturally, uh, culture, uh, the mindset, everything that we've been learning um, or that culture preaches is very deconstructionist. It just has t- torn so many things down and it's sort of left people swimming with what is real, what is truth. And so that's the beauty of when we go back to stand on things that have been true in the church for 2000 years, it gives us a platform to say, no, this is true. This is real. This is our bearings. This is our moorings in a season and where there is so much that feels uncertain in what is really truth. And so um, I think for our own community, but even as we think, again, uh, just what does it look like to minister to culture, to bring the flourishing of the kingdom out, um, just this reality of bringing both of these things together, I think um, it just feels timely for what it is that the Lord might be inviting us into. So, yeah. Yeah, so worship team, why don't you come back up? We're gonna gonna do one last song. Uh, and the song is 
from Hillsong uh, called New Wine. Uh, and there's so many just great lyrics in this uh, that we know to be true of, I think, the season that we've been in. And so we're going to sing in this. We're going to sit in it. And then uh, as, as they wrap up, we'll come back up here. But I just want us then to kind of get in groups and I think pray around these themes of just saying, Lord, you know, would you pour out the new wine? Would you grant us new wineskins? And for some of us, I think there is, there's a surrender piece. There's a surrender piece in this uh, for us as leaders. There's some unknowns. Um, and I just, I want, I'm learning and just, like, we got to be open-handed with the way that the Holy Spirit is moving and how the Lord wants to work. And anytime we kind of think we've got it figured out, I feel like that's really dangerous ground for us to be on. And so we're going to, yeah, so let's sing this song. Let's sit in this. Let's say, and just ask the Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? Uh, what's the new wine for my life? What's the new wine for our churches, for this region? Uh, what is it that you want to do? Because we want to be open to all that you have for us.